Hello, Sky Watchers. Uh, thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Rad Miller. And I'm Dara. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in June in our Cosmic Diary. So when you're looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve night vision. Now you should allow about 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when you are stargazing. And if you do use a star app on your phone, then make sure you switch on the red night vision mode. Let's start with the moon, which is primed for viewing at the beginning of the month, starting with the first quarter on the 1st of June, and then it will grow to a full moon by the 9th. Now, this is the best time to look at the moon through binoculars or a telescope because the long shadows along the terminator, this is the line separating light from dark on the moon, will help you pick out mountains and craters. And in fact, it was over 400 years ago when Galileo Galilei used the length of these shadows to estimate the height of the lunar mountain range. Now we're into the summer months. The famous summer triangle is clearly visible in the sky once again. Now this isn't an actual constellation. Instead, it's made from the brightest three stars in the three constellations of Cygnus, Lyra and Aquila. Deneb sits at the tail of Cygnus, the swan, but the constellation's most spectacular star is Albireo, at the bird's beak. Now through a pair of binoculars, you'll see that it is not one star, but it's actually two one golden yellow star and the other an electric blue. Now the reason for their different colours is that they have different surface temperatures. Blue stars are much hotter than yellow stars. Just to the left of Altair at the bottom of the triangle is a rather unspectacular constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin. But it is interesting for two reasons. First, as a relatively faint constellation, it is an excellent test of light pollution. If you can see with your own eyes, then your light pollution levels are low. However, the best thing about Delphinus is the names of two of its stars, Sualacin and Rotenev. You have to know that as astronomers, it is against the rules to name stars after yourself. However, the names of these two stars backwards spell out Nicolaus Venator, the former director of the Palermo Observatory in Sicily in Italy, who found a way to bend the rules. Now, when it comes to planets, Venus, Jupiter and Saturn are the easiest to see this month. Jupiter shines brightly in the constellation of Virgo, close to its brightest star, Spica and it is joined by the moon on the 3rd. But by the 9th, the moon has moved around the sky and sits just above Saturn in the southeast before midnight. And Venus is visible in the pre-dawn sky, dazzling in the east, not far from the famous group of stars known as the Pleiades, or the Seven Sisters. And it reaches greatest elongation on the 3rd, meaning that it is far from the sun as it gets from our perspective. So if you take any photos of the night sky this month, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. And now for our cosmic news. Welcome to our cosmic news podcast for June. Um, we're going to start with our astronomer, Dara. Uh, tell us, Dara, what's been happening over the past month? All right, so I found out that scientists have actually solved how most of the antimatter in the Milky Way forms. No! Yep. Really? So I've always thought of antimatter as this elusive thing. A lot of people think about antimatter as being a fictional thing. So let's start off and just 
you know, yeah. understand what that what antimatter is. So, believe it or not, antimatter is actually being produced every day. Uh, and antimatter is basically the complete opposite of normal matter. So everything we have around us made of particles, mm. and every single particle we know of, we think there is an antimatter particle, i.e., its evil twin somewhere else. Is it being produced in this room right now? Um, probably not in this room, but right. there are events happening around the world and even in space that can produce antimatter. Right. Um, so these antimatter particles are basically the same as normal matter particles in every single way, except they have an opposite charge. So particles right. are usually positively charged or negatively charged. Sometimes we find neutral particles. Antimatter particles just have the opposite charge. So like I said, they're produced uh, kind of daily in lots of different events. Uh, they're produced when cosmic rays hit the Earth's atmosphere, so cosmic rays from space. They're actually produced uh, in thunderstorms here on Earth. So thunderstorms are thought to create uh, positrons, which are the opposite of electrons, so positively charged. We also have uh, antimatter thought to be produced in neutron stars and black holes. So they're very dense, compact uh, objects, and when they have stars or other material kind of being swallowed up into them, that can produce antimatter. Uh, there's even some radioactive decay processes that are thought to produce antimatter. And currently, uh, at the Large Hadron Collider, they're also producing antimatter particles. So they're doing lots of experiments with matter and antimatter, and they're producing them uh, at that Large Hadron Collider. Now, what's interesting is it's predicted that antimatter should behave in exactly the same way as normal matter particles. They should obey all of the rules of physics. Mm. So if we ever find uh, antimatter behaving in a way that doesn't defy the laws of physics, well, we've probably got something wrong. It would actually result in us rewriting some of the basic and fundamental laws of physics that we have. So it's a huge thing that if we investigate and we find something different, mm. uh, you know, it's going to have a drastic change on what we know. Okay, so at CERN, they've actually tried to check these rules um, by creating an anti-hydrogen atom. So a hydrogen atom consists of a proton, a positively charged particle, and also an electron, a negatively charged particle. So if we make an anti-hydrogen particle, we kind of flip those around. So we get... Do you know, I've never heard of anti-hydrogen. Is this actually real? It is actually real. So they've yeah. created it uh, at CERN. So it's the opposite. It's got um, an anti-proton and also an anti-electron, which we call wow. a positron. The evil twin the of evil hydrogens. And basically what they found is they've measured the charge of an electron and the charge of uh, a positron, its opposite twin, and they found those charges to be equal and opposite, which they should be, uh, to one part in a billion. This is incredible. When you think about the charge of an electron, it's absolutely tiny. Mm. So having that uh, being the same for both of those mm. is actually a huge confirmation that you yeah. know, these are uh, obeying the laws of physics. And they're now actually looking to see if gravity affects antimatter in the same way that oh, it affects wow. matter. And interestingly, some scientists actually theorise that antimatter might have anti-gravity. So if we had an antimatter particle, instead of being accelerated towards the Earth and being pulled down by gravity, it would actually be pushed up away from the Earth's surface. Is that, how does that link to dark energy? Because dark energy is kind of like an anti-gravity effect pushing everything away. Exactly. So we don't exactly know what dark energy is. We think it makes up roughly about 70% of the kind of our universe. Um, and it's something that we think is responsible for the expansion of the universe, the accelerated expansion. Um, perhaps antiparticles and antimatter might have something to do with this, but yet it's still an unknown kind of discovery. 
So that's a little bit about what antimatter is. But where did antimatter come from in the first place? Well, we think that when the Big Bang occurred at the start of the universe about 13.8 billion years ago, antimatter and matter would have been produced in mm-hmm. roughly the same amounts. But today, we don't see that antimatter. Our universe is composed mainly of matter. And so we kind of question where did all that antimatter go? And some people, so this is something that came out last year, uh, there was an article published in the universe today that said, could there be antimatter galaxies, galaxies can completely kind of composed of antimatter particles. So if there are these antimatter galaxies, maybe there are antimatter stars within them, antimatter exoplanets and planets around them, maybe even antimatter uh, aliens. That's really interesting because it's like the biggest question I think um, for particle physicists is, you know, at the Big Bang, why was there unequal number of uh, matter and antimatter? Why weren't they equal? Why didn't they all collide with each other in the early universe and completely annihilate? And yeah, the, the fact that there is this tiny, there was this tiny surplus of matter, and that's why we're here. But this is really a really interesting theory, like in terms of yeah, antimatter and. Um, did it all collide? Did it all annihilate? What what have we? So you've brought up a really now? interesting point, um, and the idea of you know antimatter has kind of disappeared because it annihilates. When antimatter comes together with matter, mm. they actually kind of uh, kind of essentially disappear. But they don't disappear themselves. They actually release a burst of energy, and that's how we detect that there might have been antimatter there. Um, so this is why people are proposing, oh, are there antimatter gravities? If so, why haven't we seen them? And interestingly, you're talking about antimatter stars and planets and aliens. If we were ever to meet an antimatter alien, mm. it would probably be quite a tragic event. Because, I mean, if we went to hug them, yeah. we would annihilate and combust yeah, ourselves into of most rays. of energy. <laughs> so, yeah. We assume that we probably haven't seen antimatter galaxies because they will probably have interacted with matter around them, yeah. uh, annihilated, and so we would have seen a burst of energy. Uh, but some people propose that it might be theoretically possible if mm. anti-gravity is real. If anti-gravity oh. is real, anti-galaxies wouldn't be all kind of being pulled together. They would actually uh, be pushing things apart. Right. And if they were pushing things apart you wouldn't get interaction, you wouldn't get things... Yeah, they're not going to merge, are they? Exactly. Not gonna so, oh, this, is this might be possible. <laughs> but again, uh, you know, we haven't detected anything. And the third thing that might make them detectable is supernova going off inside these antimatter galaxies. So here, when we have supernova in our normal galaxies, yeah. they produce these very high-energy, fast-moving particles called neutrinos. But if we had an antimatter supernova happening, it wouldn't produce neutrinos. It would produce other types of particles. Mm. And it's pretty much like a dead giveaway. It's like seeing, ah, uh, that's not producing the right type of particles. It can't <laughs> be a normal galaxy. So there's the hope that antimatter galaxies might exist. But yeah. uh, sorry to disappoint anyone. Astronomers have looked and we haven't found any no. yet. No. So they're just too far away. Like if they're perhaps, pushing things um, away. Could be. It yeah. could be, like you mentioned, related to dark energy. Um, I don't know. I find it quite difficult to believe that if there are antimatter galaxies out there, they haven't interacted with normal matter. They probably will have annihilated. Probably there could have been in the past. There might have been in the past. Um, So the recent discovery for today's news story is basically Mm. a team of international astrophysicists that were led uh, by the Australian National University has shown how most of the antimatter that we find in the Milky Way actually forms. 
Now, we've known since 1970s that the inner parts of the Milky Way are very strong sources of gamma rays. Mm. Now, like you mentioned, gamma rays are produced when antimatter and matter annihilate. They produce that strong burst of energy. So by seeing gamma rays, we infer the existence that antiparticles are there. Uh, but we just don't know how, we, how they actually got there. So this is what they found out. Uh, now, our galaxy hosts about 10 to the power of 43 yeah. uh, of these low-energy positrons right. uh, kind of annihilating. So every second, uh, there are 10 to the power of 43. So imagine a 1 with 43 mm. zeros after it. Yeah. That many annihilations happening. You're joking. So there is huge amounts of these gamma rays being kind of emitted. And what they found is that there are different things that could produce them. Stars can produce gamma rays in the sense of annihilation. Um, stellar remnants, things like black holes and neutron stars, and even supernova can lead to the annihilation and therefore production of gamma rays. But the thing that's been a giveaway to show how the antimatter in our galaxies is produced is the strength of that signal. So by knowing there are 10 to the power of 43 reactions happening, looking at all those different types of events, the one that is suggested because it strongly matches the signals that we're seeing is that it originates from uh, the convergence of two white dwarf stars. Ah. So our sun, actually, at the end of its life, will become a white dwarf star. These yeah. are the remnants of small to medium-sized star. The giveaway of the outer layers of gas and left behind is a white dwarf star. And that's where we think uh, the antimatter in our galaxy is actually coming from, from two wow. white dwarf stars coming together. Usually have a bigger one and a smaller one. Yeah. Uh, so the smaller one we call a helium white dwarf. Right. It has helium on its outside and the larger one usually has a carbon oxygen outer envelope so this bigger one uh, they're both kind of spiraling around each other and when they get close enough the bigger one will basically tear away the helium atmosphere from the smaller one yeah. that helium envelope will surround the bigger one and this is a very energetic event and in that kind of as they co coalesce and merge and they ripped the uh, smaller companion apart it's in that that the antimatter is produced and because it strongly matches the signal and the strength of the signal we found, yeah. that's what they think is causing antimatter to be produced in our galaxy. So they are like little particle accelerators, these colliding white dwarfs, yeah. I guess, because they are producing uh, antimatter in our galaxy. That, oh, my mind has popped a million times while you were talking There's through that. Loads There's loads and loads so of questions that come out of this. Yeah, I've got loads, yeah. Um, okay. All right. I okay. want you to hit me with your new story right, now well, then. Do you know what? This story came out today um, and it's linked to a spacecraft called Juno. Do I know Juno? 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 Ju Ju Juno, yeah. <laughs> the, the goddess uh, married to Jupiter, right? Ooh. And apparently Jupiter was a naughty boy um, and he created a veil, um, a very cloudy veil to stop his wife seeing what he was getting up to mischievous yes mis mischief and um but she was able to peer through the veil of mischief and see what he was up to um so i think well obviously this is this spacecraft is looking at jupiter i mean it's called juno because it's peering through the clouds through the cloudy uh -huh. atmosphere of jupiter to see what's happening behind that veil of mischief to see what's happening inside this planet um, now, Jupiter is the fifth planet in our solar system. It's the largest planet by far. It's 11 uh, times wider than the Earth. Really interesting fact. You could fit the whole of the solar system, 
not including the sun, of course, but the rest of the solar system inside Jupiter. So not just the planets, you're talking about all the other spare pieces of rock, the asteroids, yeah. the comets, Everything every little piece. can go in. Well, or, think of it another way, 1,300 Earths can, can fit inside Jupiter. Absolutely huge, huge world. Um, and it's very different to our planet. I mean, for, well, first and foremost, it's made of gas. Um, and it's made of hydrogen and helium gas, two lightest elements in the universe. And our sun is also made of hydrogen and helium gas. So if Jupiter is made of hydrogen and helium and the sun is also made of the same gases, why is Jupiter not a star? Um, I get asked this a lot, actually. The reason why these gas giants are not stars is because they are not massive enough to reach a really high temperature in the core. Now, the core of our sun is 15 million degrees Celsius. That's where I'm going for my summer holiday. Yes. Um, and uh, it's nowhere near as hot uh, in the core of Jupiter. It'd still be, you know, a couple of thousand, maybe tens of thousands of degrees because of um, uh, everything being compressed and, and, you know, gravitational potential energy converting to thermal energy. But um, in terms of the sun, that temperature is hot enough to bring hydrogen nuclei together. Um, and then we get a process called nuclear fusion, which then spits out helium and light. And it's all linked via that famous formula E equals mc squared, energy um, being extracted from matter, from mass. And that's not happening in the core of Jupiter. It's just simply not hot enough to do that. So uh, it is a planet, and it's a pretty big planet. It's got 67 moons. Um, and Juno, Juno's job is to uh, analyse uh, some really, really fundamental properties of this world. Things like uh, its composition, so in, in more detail, what, which other molecules or elements does it have? Also, its interior structure. Um, I can't believe, like, for the whole of my life I've been talking about Jupiter, but we still don't know really what's happening inside this giant world. So in structure also the magnetosphere uh, which sounds like some kind of x-man <laughs> but this is a huge strong magnetic field that uh, extends many many kilometers into space um, and Saturn has an, an incredibly strong magnetic field um, and Juno itself actually was launched in 2011 and it took five years to reach Jupiter so far, it's covered a, a total distance of about 3 billion kilometres. Oh, wow. Now, Jupiter itself isn't that far away, um, but it just it's all the manoeuvring it has to do. Um, and it's now in an orbit where uh, the closest it reaches is around about 5,000 kilometres from the surface. But it is in an, in an elliptical orbit, and it's, uh, it actually completes uh, one orbit every 53 days. So as I mentioned, it's got lots of jobs... It's got lots of instruments on board. It's a, it's a moving laboratory. Uh, it costs uh, just over $1 billion to make. And so they want to get a lot out of it. Now today, um, uh, they released, NASA released, these absolutely stunning, stunning photographs of the surface of Jupiter. Um, and these are images that I would never expect to see. Um, for the first time, we are seeing really high resolution images of the North and South Poles. And what's so beautiful about these photographs is that there are all of these hurricanes, cyclones, okay, these swirling regions of gas 
Um, and we're talking on Jupiter, the winds can reach over 600 kilometers per hour. So it's really, really super fast uh, winds. Um, but there are loads and loads, for some reason, loads and loads of these hurricanes, these cyclones that are all rotating and interacting and they're very densely packed near the poles. Um, and there are these bright and dark spots as we see gas rising and setting and mixing and swirling. So it's very turbulent, very dynamic. Very yeah, kind of it's, it's, a, it's a lot more violent, a lot more chaotic than I thought it would be. Um, so really, really astonishing um, data. Um, and in fact, these hurricanes, these cyclones, um, can reach one, one and a half thousand kilometers in diameter. That, that's uh, over a third of the diameter of the moon. Wow. Yeah, really, ten, at least 10 times wider than the biggest hurricanes on Earth. Which you would expect for a planet that's a lot bigger than the Earth. Um, so really quite, yeah, really chaotic, dynamic environment. So that by itself is really exciting. Okay, because scientists didn't really expect to see that. The other thing they, they noticed is that there's this huge belt of ammonia gas, all right, which goes all the way around the equatorial region um, of Jupiter. And they've seen that this ammonia gas is rising and setting, just like convection currents, if you boil a saucepan of water, sure. and, you know, the hot water rises and the cooler water descends. So it's very similar to that. But what they've noticed, using their microwave detector, because this, these ammonia molecules uh, emit microwave signals, which can get through the hydrogen gas clouds, um, they've noticed that the concentration of ammonia varies around the planet. And they're not sure why. Um, one would assume, just for, for simplicity, that the density or the, uh, you know, the, kind of the concentration of ammonia would be uniform all the way around, but it's not. Um, and so that what that suggests is that the interior of Jupiter isn't as well mixed as they thought it was. Right. Okay. It's lumpy. It's inhomogeneous, if you want to put it in a scientific term. Um, it's a bit like uh, lumps in your porridge. So it's not very well mixed. Why? No one knows. Exciting stuff to find out, though. Absolutely. So it's, you know, it's kind of an indirect way of peering through, you know, using a microwave detector to see the ammonia uh, like this is this is Juno now peering through the clouds of mischief and no, seeing something untoward, seeing something that they didn't really expect. A few other things that they've got on board: they've got a, a magnetic sensor and they've got a gravity sensor. Uh huh. They're doing all kinds of things, but with the magnetic sensor, they've realised that the uh, the strength of the magnetic field around where the spacecraft is is um, twice as strong as they thought it would be. And it's at least 10 times stronger than the magnetic field on Earth in, the, in that region. And also, of course, as that spacecraft it orbits the planet, it can detect the local variations in strength of magnetic field. And it's noticed that it, that does change. That's also lumpy, like the ammonia, that the magnetic field is lumpy. It's not the same strength all the way around. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, how is that magnetic field created? Well, in the Earth, it's created by something called the dynamo effect. In the core of the Earth, we have this iron-nickel core which rotates, um, and that generates this swirling magnetic field, and that then leads to a very strong magnetic field around the Earth. Um, and in Jupiter, um, we don't have an iron-nickel iron core, but what we do have is lots of electrically charged um, particles or maybe hydrogen ions that are swirling around and as um, electrically charged particles move as they accelerate they produce their own magnetic field um, so 
where is that core? Where is that dynamo that's creating that global magnetic field? They, well, one would assume, like the Earth, it's right bang in the middle. And they now think it's not in the centre. Ah, uh, what? I know. So that, that cloud of, of electrically charged particles might not be in the centre, where, where, where it's super, super dense, but it might be slightly uh, further out. From there um, in, in a layer of molecular hydrogen not uh, hydrogen not dense metallic hydrogen so it's not quite in the core they don't know why so does Jupiter have uh, a core a core like the air okay even though... well this is a really this is I've wanted to know that that uh, that's this is something that I've yeah questioned before absolutely and I get asked that like, you know is it gas all the way through right what's in the middle for actually, until Juno released this data, I think a lot of scientists were assuming that there was kind of some kind of rocky uh, silica Solid core. Cool. That's what uh, I did. And I imagined it like a Scotch egg or something that was in like a defined boundary. And now what we think is that actually it's a lot more diffuse than that. Um, they're being very vague about it because they have no idea, right? So it could be gas all the way through. It just gets denser and that gas gets denser and denser until it becomes a kind of solid. So it could, no, no silicates, no rock. Um, and, you know, how, where is the boundary of the core? There might not be. It's just a gradual transition. So from their gravity sensor, they think that there isn't a rocky core, that it's very diffuse. Um, and that's, that's challenged you know, previous So no defined boundary, basically. We don't know where the core starts or no. finishes. It no. could be big, it could be yeah. small, it's diffuse, basically. Who knows? Yeah, so this wow. is, again, this is that's quite a massive thing. Um, and uh, one last thing I actually wanted to mention is the aurorae. Oh, does Jupiter have aurorae? It does. Aww. It's not the only one, Saturn. Saturn also exhibits beautiful aurorae. Um, and it, the, you can only get aurorae if you've got a strong magnetic field. So Mars, bless it, doesn't have a strong magnetic field, no aurorae, unfortunately. Um, but the Earth does have northern southern lights. Um, and the way that aurorae occur on Earth is that solar wind particles travelling super fast across space get caught up in the Earth's magnetic field field lines which converge at the north and south poles a little bit like a bike getting caught in a tram line so these particle particles spiral around the magnetic field and that's lines. because they're charged particles right yeah absolutely so this only happens with charged particles they are influenced they are pushed around by a magnetic field as well as creating their own magnetic field this is where it gets a bit complicated um, but when they are when they are channeled funneled towards the north and south pole they then encounter the earth's atmosphere and they hit uh, the molecules of oxygen, molecules of nitrogen in the air, and these uh, atoms absorb that energy, and their electrons jump up and down inside the atoms and release light. They fluoresce, they glow. It's absolutely stunning. Um, and uh, Jupiter also uh, has its own aurorae, which are, do you know what? They're brightest in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum. Like a bee, you would need to have UV eyesight to see them. But of course, we've got UV uh, telescopes that allow us to, 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 to see them. these UV aurorae. Um, and the, the, the final question that they have with that is, they, because you are getting streams and streams of electrons that are channeled towards the north and south poles um, of Jupiter along its really strong magnetic field, that's millions and millions of amps worth of current. And these moving electrons, they should be producing their own magnetic signal because they're moving. And that's all part of electromagnetic induction, okay. something that Michael Faraday, British scientist, discovered uh, a couple of hundred years ago. 
Um, but they're not, they, they're not detecting this, you know, kind of small magnetic signature from these moving electrons. So, well, why? And is there something masking that signal? Is it just, you know, is there some kind of different mechanism that's occurring? So that's a massive question as well. But, you know, maybe they just need to repeat the experiment or collect more data. So it's all these huge things that, that are brand new, but also what it's led to is even more questions. Sure. And they, I guess what they're, what they're doing now, these scientists are frantically rewriting their proposal, rewriting what they, what they want to look at to next. To try and answer those To answer questions. those questions that they weren't expecting in the first place. So it's really quite interesting. So it really so. does seem like Jupiter is full of secrets underneath its kind of yeah. cloudy tops. Very mischievous. And yeah, uh, yeah. there's a it lot knew. going on down there that we don't know about. <laughs> Absolutely. I, who knows if there's antimatter, Dara? Maybe that's the next one. Jupiter? <laughs> So there you go. Those are our stories. Lovely stories for this month. Uh, so if you guys uh, have uh, got a favourite story, we're going to put up a poll on Twitter. Please do vote for your favourite. And so until the next month, it's bye from me. And bye from me. Bye from me.